ACDC Reads is a one-woman bassoon read shop in Minnesota run by Ariel Detweiler, producing over 1,200 reads per year. Selling beginner and advanced level bassoon reads, ACDC Reads are hailed by customers for their even intonation, ease of response in all registers, warm tone quality, and strong low register. Every read is made from tube cane processed in-house to Ariel's specifications using Rigotti or Lavaro cane and a Rieger 1A shape. You'll also find bassoon-themed gifts in the shop, including greeting cards, stickers, artistic prints, and the ever-popular Blackwing Bassoon Pencil. Make sure to follow ACDC Reads on Instagram, where Ariel posts artistic photos and educational stories about her everyday experiences with readmaking. ACDC Reads is proud to sponsor Double Read Dish, sharing positive and uplifting interviews to inspire and connect the bassoon community around the world. Find ACDC Reads at acdcreads.com or at retailers like Chemical City Double Reads, Midwest Musical Imports, or Read Supplies Canada. Try out ACDC Reads today and let the read do the work. Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Jackie, tell us uh, what new is happening in your life as of yesterday. As of yesterday. Well, and it's actually kind of perfect because I think the last time we dished was the day I sent it out. As of yesterday, my bassoon is back. She's back. She's back. And I, uh, thank you for bringing this up because I did, I was like, maybe I should say something about this on the podcast. But like, we have spoken on this podcast before about burnout. Mm. And I don't know that I have experienced it before in the way that I experienced it this last spring semester. Like I was like, oh, burnout is when you feel tired. Oh, burnout is when you feel overwhelmed. And with that festival of contemporary music that I was learning so many pieces for and everything, I just, I think I literally experienced burnout for the first time in my life. Mm -hmm. and um yeah so I took some time off this summer and by time off I mean the entire months of May June and July up to yesterday (laughs) which (laughs) is the longest break I've ever taken in my life but I needed it Mm -hmm. and what was funny is this last week while I've been waiting for my bassoon to get back I felt like rudderless and just like, I'm missing something. And I was just like, I want to play my bassoon. Like I, I began to really, really miss it. Mm-hmm. And um, I've already practiced for several hours today. Like, just because I'm like, oh my God, I love this. Like, this is why I do what I do, blah, blah, blah. But I really needed that break. 
like mm-hmm. by the end of the semester, I'll be honest, there are times I was practicing that I was just like, when can this be over? Mm-hmm. I'm not having fun. I just want, this feels like such a unfun obligation. And not that it feels fun all the time. We're professionals. It's work. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to do what you got to do sometimes. But the balance was so off in a mm-hmm. way it had never been off before. And so I guess I just say this to validate anyone who has felt those feelings before and also say that breaks are not only okay, they are necessary sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I've agreed with that sympathetically, but I don't think I really was able to empathize before this last semester and mm-hmm. whatnot. So young. Yeah. Well, I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Yeah, she's back and she's ready to rock and roll. Absolutely. So what have you been doing while you're uh, on a bassoon break? Well, I've been doing a little summer reading. Mm, me too. Oh my goodness. <laughs> What's the dish topic for today? We're talking about summer reading, not R-E-E-D reading. No. R-E-A-D. Double R-E-A-D dish. That's right. A. Yes. <laughs> So what have you been reading this summer? Okay, I have two things that I've been making my way through. I'm kind of a funny uh, person because I always want to read nonfiction. Like those are the titles that I feel most compelled by when I'm like looking at the spines of books or like thumbing through bookstores. Um, But then it comes time to actually read them. And I have a hard time like being really page turnery dedicated with those books um even though I want that knowledge in my head so bad I just you know it takes a lot more discipline than I wish it did maybe those would be better audiobook experiences perhaps yes um but so what I've been doing is slowly making my way through the nonfiction book by supplementing it with fiction like okay you get this much fiction and then you have to read a couple so the nonfiction book that I'm reading right now is um Stacey Abrams lead from the outside cool I started that shortly after being elected to the IDRS executive board um and the premise it obviously we know Stacey Abrams but um it's a perspective of being you know a woman woman of color in leadership and um, just kind of strategies and uh, a summary of her experiences and what she's learned in those experiences. And I was really interested in this because leadership is not something I especially excel at and it tends to make me nervous and I second guess decisions. And so I thought maybe, maybe this could strengthen my spine a little bit or be a good resource. So I love that. I've been really liking that. And then the fiction that I just finished a Celeste Ng book, but um, the fiction book I'm reading now, I just started, I'm literally like 10 pages in is Emma Klein's The Girls. Uh, which came very highly recommended. I saw several people online like freaking out about it. It's historical fiction hmm. about um, the main character is like joins the Manson family. <laughs> it's not comedy. I'm laughing because it's awkward. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, I will, you know, I, I've heard it's very good. People whose taste I, I share a lot of similarities with like it. And so I'm excited to delve further in sorry if that's that's creepy but yeah so far so good I love creepy stuff (laughs) um yeah I am firmly in fiction right now because 
I don't know. When I was a kid, I was a voracious reader. I I would get in trouble for reading in class. Yeah. I couldn't get enough. I was reading all the time. And then during and after grad school, mm-hmm. I just stopped. Like I'm telling my story. Yeah. I could not keep my attention mm-hmm. on the book I'm reading. Yeah. So, but I, but I, um, have been trying a little bit harder and also like trusting myself. Like if I'm not getting into a book within the first, I don't know, 50 pages, like it's okay. I can let it go and I can try a different book. Yes. And that's very, very hard for me, Yeah, but I completely agree. I had the same experience. I've been like, I want to get more into reading, which is a weird thing to say. Well, but, it's so much healthier than just doom scrolling for hours. Thousand percent. And I love and enjoyable. Yeah. Yes. I love reading. It's just, it's easy to get out of the habit of reading. Yeah. I'm also an interesting reader because I, apparently when I was a kid, my mom enrolled me in a speed reading class, but I have no memory of it. So I'm a speed reader but I didn't know I was doing it for a really long time. So I will blaze through these books, but I don't read for detail. I read for like the general overview. (laughs) Mm. So I needed to be like super heavy plot points, like fast moving. If there's a lot of like descriptions of like the colors of the leaves on the trees, I'm out. I can't do it. But I found this great series by Samantha Shannon. She also wrote more recently The Priory of the Orange Tree, which is a very popular uh, fantasy kind of sci-fi novel. It's like really big, like thick book. Um, But she wrote this three-part series. uh, And the first one is called The Bone Season. And I'm on the third one. And it's basically like a dystopian future and it's got magic in it and it's like very compelling and it moves really fast and uh I'm they're pretty thick books and I'm already like almost done with the third book so highly recommend wow I tend to hate fantasy I thought I hated fantasy everything and then I got very into Game of Thrones okay that to date that's the only fantasy content I've ever like happily consumed but i don't I mean, get to films. each their own yeah yes, if you love fantasy i love when people get excited to read yeah becky and i have completely different book tastes like i cannot read any of the books on our shelves because they're <laughs> just her books are so depressing i can't i can't do it <laughs> what is she reading about historical <laughs> fiction of the manson family or <laughs> Well, we asked our listeners what books they're into this summer, and we got some excellent responses. Yes. Romaine said Akotar series, and both you and I had to Google that. We absolutely had to Google it. (laughs) Apparently, that means a court of thorns and roses, um, which appears to be a series of books. I think it's super popular. The covers look very familiar to me. I have definitely seen people carrying around this book. Also, I trust Romaine's book knowledge because Romaine is one of my former students and she's pursuing a master's in library science. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. I I looked it up briefly. (laughs) I don't know if it's fair or fire or... No idea. The main 
protagonist. Romaine is screaming right now. I'm sure so many listeners are just screaming right now. <laughs> the main protagonist is a huntress. She thinks nothing of slaughtering a wolf to capture its prey, which doesn't tell me much, but I'm intrigued. <laughs> if Romaine says it's good, then it's good. Yes, yes. <laughs> tell me if you uh, recommend. Oh, it's see, you should check it out. It says it's an adult fantasy novel. So usually those have fast moving plots. So I'm into it. Okay, well, you can read it and you can follow up and tell me what you think and how you think um, the huntress's name is pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> we got um, quite a few excellent suggestions from Dylan reading through a slew of pre-1750 treatises for a dissertation proposal. Dylan? It's summer. <laughs> it's summer. Go read some Colleen Hoover, Dylan. <laughs> Go read the notebook, Dylan. Speaking of the notebook, Dylan is also reading the anti-anxiety notebook, Cognitive Behavior Therapy Journal for their path forward, which actually sounds awesome. And I probably need that. Oh, yeah. Gwyneth gave us several good recommendations, including Daisy Jones and the Six, um, which is apparently about set in the past 1977 when Daisy Jones and the Six were on top of the world. The band had ridden, risen from obscurity to fame and then sell out a show at Chicago's Soldiers Field. It looks like it's maybe about a, a band getting back together for a revival show. Um, it looks fabulous. It does. And like just great summer fun. Apparently it's being turned into like a movie or show, which doesn't always translate great. But what it does mean is there's a bunch of people who think that book is so awesome that Hollywood is willing to turn it into a movie or a show. Well, but um, in case you were wondering, we don't just read books. What a good segue. (laughs) So smooth. (laughs) Such a seamless transition to our next topic. Uh, Go ahead, Jackie. Yes, we don't Take it away. just read books. <laughs> and we don't write books either, but we nope. make book. <laughs> what is happening? Okay, we, will you just tell the audience, the listeners what is going on? Okay, Jackie and I this summer have been working on a coloring book, a double read dish coloring book. That is perfect for your studio class activities, for entertainment during your double read days, for supplementary fun times, for all your double read needs. And we have put together this pretty massive project. Yeah, it's over 60 pages. Yeah. And I think it's a really nice balance of, like you said, activities and worksheets that like you can either work on independently or with friends, studio mates, students, but also just plain coloring book pages for if coloring is your thing and that's your way to relax. Um, But we tried to really curate those illustration pages. In addition to double read themed imagery, we 
incorporated a lot of our quotes from the quote cards for the podcast mm-hmm. and tried to select quotes that would be really at home on a studio wall or a hanging in a locker or hanging in a read room. Just things that are affirming and um, encouraging and would be edifying to our audience. So yeah, you can get it just for yourself. You can get it to supplement your teaching. And I'm I'm confident whatever you need, it's in this book. <laughs> it's going to be available on our website for digital download purchase. It's available now as they're listening. Yeah, go to our website and go buy it. It's not expensive. It's such a great way to meditate on the idea of the quote. Yeah, You know, just like spending some time with it and coloring in those words and those images and, you know, as a background to your iPad or phone. Yeah. So it's, it's got a lot of stuff in there for all kinds of double read needs. And we think you're going to love it. We hope you love it. We spent a lot of time on it. A lot of time. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. We are so happy to welcome to Double Read Dish, Glenn Einschlag, Principal Bassoon of the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra and faculty at the Glenn Gould School of Music. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be here. We love to start by asking our guests how they started playing their instruments. So can you tell us how you began with the bassoon? Uh, yes, it was. Uh, I started the bassoon in sixth grade. I um, where I went. To, I'm from New Jersey originally, and uh, in fifth grade, we uh, in I was still in elementary school. We were able to start an instrument, and I picked alto saxophone. And when we got into middle school, which was sixth to eighth grade, there was an orchestra and a bigger band and i wanted to try every single instrument i and luckily i had uh band teachers that uh were actually really encouraging of that i went to tenor saxophone to french horn to flute to percussion to trombone um i was zigzagging through through every single instrument and at one point, I think it was in the middle of the year, um, the band teachers wanted to start someone on oboe and bassoon. And they asked for any volunteers. And of course, I immediately volunteered for the bassoon. 
because it looked really big in pictures, which uh, to my mind equaled a really cool instrument. And also I was attracted by the fact that nobody else was doing it. And so it would be really interesting and unique. And so I, I vividly to this day, remember the exact moment I tried this. I remember what I was wearing and I, I remember my first impression was actual disappointment because the case looked really small compared to what I thought was going to come through the door. <laughs> I, I just, I remember being like, oh, that's it, you know? Um, and also uh, being very, like having to search around for the holes on the opposite side because I couldn't see where my fingers were going. Um, and also being very, finding it very uh, bizarre that there were vibrations both on my bottom and my top lip. And, um, and so I, uh, it wasn't like I had some massively epiphanal moment where as soon as I started playing the bassoon, you know, clouds parted and rays of sunshine shone through. And I knew that this was what I wanted to do. It, it wasn't anything like that. It was, um, it was just little by little, other things just started falling away. And I had a, a somewhat natural aptitude for the bassoon and, since there were so few people doing it, I, you know, started getting into like regional bands and all county and then all state. And it slowly emerged as my extracurricular thing, you know? And uh, yeah, that was that. Here we are. So talk us through deciding that this is what you want to do as your career and that right. um, maybe walk us through your training and educational journey. Right, right. Um, well, as I said, I, I started getting into, uh, you know, bands and orchestras um, in New Jersey. They had like regional bands and sure in different places, you know, your, our listeners can, can relate to that. Um, and I was doing something called the New Jersey Youth Symphony. I did that for all four years of high school. And I did a Juilliard pre-college uh, program for the last three years of high school. And I remember, oh, and uh, let me backtrack. Uh, for New Jersey Youth Symphony, um, it uh, took place in a town like about an hour away from where I lived. And my father would drive me there. It, it was like a rehearsals once a week, generally speaking. And I vividly remember um, my father driving me home from a rehearsal sometime in my junior year of high school. And I, I know it was my junior year because my father and I were having a discussion about where to apply to go to college because next year I was going to be a senior and we had to figure out where to apply to college. And we were faced with the decision of um, going into music, going all in for to study bassoon, like, uh, for example, a conservatory uh, situation like that. Uh, or a university with a big music school, or going into some other profession and having music or bassoon be a hobby on the side. Um, and my father uh, convinced me that I had to go into music. Uh, I had no other choice. He knew that I was very passionate about it. And uh, he said, you know, you love it too much. He said, if you go into something else, like, um, I don't know, for example, if you became an accountant 
and you played bassoon as a hobby on the side. He said, for the rest of your life, you will be wondering what your life would have been like if you had followed your bliss. Mm. And he said, even if, if you go into it and it doesn't work out or if it's not what you thought it was, he said, you can always go back to school and study something else and pursue something else. But you will have peace of mind that you went for it. And he said, also, your youth should be uh, spent doing what you love, which um, I'm very grateful for. That's so supportive. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. Very, very, very supportive. Um, Which I count myself as being very lucky, uh, you know, because uh, many parents obviously are cognizant of the of of how perilous a career in the arts can be and Mm -hmm. and how uh, how sort of, you know, dangerous it can, it can be and, and and seemingly unsteady and they won't want their their children to go into it but 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 again my my dad just noticed that it was my tribe and uh it was where i was the best version of myself and so uh so yeah so i uh i pursued it what did that look like for you oh that looked like um a uh, i i only applied to uh conservatories um, that was, um, that, that felt like what I, what I wanted to do. Um, so, uh, my undergrad, I went to the Curtis Institute of Music, uh, from 1990 to 1994. And then, uh, after I graduated from there, I started what would have been a master's degree at the uh, CCM, College Conservatory of Music at the University of Cincinnati with uh, William Winstead. Uh, oh, uh, backtrack. I studied with Bernard Garfield at the Curtis Institute of Music. And um, I studied uh, with William Winstead at CCM. Now I say I started a master's degree. However, Shortly into that program, I realized I had to take a class where I had to write a research paper. And I hadn't done anything anywhere near close to that for four years. And and also the the academic rigors of a master's degree at someplace like CCM compared to my undergrad. Uh, the you know academic side of my studies at Curtis were were really quite stark, and so I decided to switch to what I, was then called an artist diploma program. I don't know if they still have it uh, at CCM, but it was an artist diploma program, which was um, it was not a master's degree, but it, it was just a much more you know performance based, far less academic program. Um, now, because I had started that sort of midway through, that would have added a third year onto my time at CCM. Incidentally, between my second and third year, uh, sorry, between my second and what would have been my third year at CCM, I won a job, a one-year position playing second bassoon in the Indianapolis Symphony. So I did that. And then after that, I then uh, went and pursued my master's degree uh, at Rice University with Ben Kamen's. Where I got over it and wrote a research paper for a Baroque studies course my very first year. And because uh, there was no more discipline <laughs> rice for me to do. So I I uh, wrote the paper that I still have to this day. It was about Castrati. <laughs> and I, I, I kid you not, I entitled it Snip, <laughs> colon, 
The Castrato considers. <laughs> True story. True story. I could send you it. <laughs> Is there a moil on the roof? We need I, a right, moil. Seriously. Exactly. Hey, you know. <laughs> The jokes write themselves, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so that was my pedagogical background. Um, can you talk to a you? You referenced this uh, one-year position in Indianapolis, but um, can mm-hmm. you talk us through embarking on your professional journey and uh, how you got to the Buffalo Philharmonic today? Yes. Um, when I was in school, I definitely started taking professional auditions. Um, at that point, it was clear to me I I, I wanted to be in an orchestra. I wanted to, to play in a professional orchestra. And um, successful audition taking is a skill. And like any skill, it needs to be practiced. And so I was taking professional auditions while in school um, as much as I could, you know, um, schedule wise, financial wise, all that, uh, you know, as much as I could fit it in and stuff like that. And I uh, won the position in Buffalo um, in mid October of my second year at Rice. Uh, I felt very, 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 very fortunate uh, to to have done that. And luckily, uh, Buffalo was very generous uh, in the sense that they did not require me to leave school um, right then and there. They allowed me to finish off my year uh, at Rice, finish off my master's degree. And I only came up to Buffalo once a month, one week a month. And so, um, so yeah, so I've been there ever since. Auditioning can be a brutal process. So can you give us any advice as both an auditioner and an audition uh, listener on the other side of the screen? Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, it's, uh, you know, it it, it is, you know, um, the the field and especially auditions, the the level of Darwinian cruelty uh, to uh, to the process is uh, is pretty profound on both sides of the screen, really. Um, I uh, before I, I I got my my position uh, in in Buffalo, I had never sat on the opposite side of a screen, and so auditions were um, you know a rather one-sided, uh, you know, I, I, I looked at them from, you know, one, one side, but now I've looked at them from both sides now. I don't know if anybody got that joke, but anyway, um, and, uh, and still I know somehow. That. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for getting that. Um, <laughs> uh, basically the, the task, uh, for the auditioner, the one playing the audition is you are tasked with convincing a majority of people behind the screen, you know, assembled on that day at that time, uh, that you are someone they want to work with. And uh, 
we have, as, as auditioners, we have no idea who they are. Um, it's incredibly shocking how different, uh, different instrument groups have different pedagogical traditions and prize different things. Um, and it is shocking to now actually let me let me backtrack with my orchestra um the first two round this is uh just speaking to my experience uh being on the listening side of the audition um my orchestra every orchestra has has different processes for how they structure their auditions my uh, uh orchestra the, the screen is up the entire time we have no idea who any of the people are until we've hired someone and meet them to congratulate them so we have no idea which i i quite like actually um <clears throat> But the first two rounds are through silent ballot only. There's there's only voting going on. Um, now, I will say this. I've had three, I've adjudicated three second bassoon auditions thus far in my time in Buffalo. And it is uh, really shocking when, you know, during voting, I see people that I really would like to advance don't get enough votes and people who I would not like to advance advance and, and get a lot of votes. Um, it, it can be incredibly shocking. Uh, but then in the final round, it's uh, our choices are decided by what we call in our contract, amicable discussion, um, which can range from, a very quick hand vote to a literal screaming match, which I have <laughs> witnessed. Uh, <laughs> for real. <laughs> for real. Um, now, again, when when people start, start talking about the things that they're hearing, the things that they're listening for, the things that they're, uh, that they prize, it's evident to me how, how difficult it is getting people to, you know, a, you know, even that, that work together every day to, to agree on something. Therefore, I would stress for auditioners to, as best they can, play to their own aesthetics. They have no idea who's behind the screen. They have, they have no idea whether they like the person who vacated the position, where they, whether they hate the person who vacated the position, whether they... Uh, really like uh, each other, whether they are hungry, whether they're in a bad mood, whether they had a fight with their spouse, what their political, like any number of things, where they studied, you, you know, all that type of stuff. And you have no control over any of that. And so it's much better to, because all an audition really is uh, for the auditioner is hopefully it's an accurate depiction of where you are in your development at that moment. That's all that ever can be. That's all anyone ever can do, I think, is just play in a way that accurately depicts where they are in their development. Beyond that, uh, you know, whether one advances or not, that's the committee's job. Well, what that made me think of is just how how much healthier that seems to have that attitude because it's very easy... As the auditionee to think, if I'm good enough, I'll advance. If I'm not good enough, I won't advance. And to let it be a 
black and white binary of, you know, a very personal reflection of your self-worth as a musician. Right. It's, um, it's very easy to equate one's work with one's self-worth. And as artists, as creative types, they often do intertwine (laughs) and uh every now and again it's you know and i think it's it's somewhat at least for me and an eternal struggle to to separate the two um and you know sometimes i allow them to be intertwined uh consciously and uh but but yeah one can uh you know see an audition or, or whether someone advances or doesn't advance, how well one does as a, you know, sort of reflection on, on someone's self-worth. And, and it, it's absolutely not that way. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating. I, you know, listening to auditions, I, um, one thing that I've noticed is uh, the mental endurance that is required being on the listening side of the screen. I don't know if any of you have listened to the same three excerpts 60, 70 times in a row, um, but it is, it is quite, it is, it is quite something, you know, because after a while it's very easy to not know what you're, what you're listening to, what you're listening to. It all just blends together. And it's, it's, it's very challenging because you obviously, you know, each one of us on that committee knows the, you know, what it's like to have spent outrageous amount of time, you know, preparing for it, money, you know, transporting yourself, you know, to the audition. These are, you know, these are events, you know, for, for people. And, and, and so you want to give everyone the, you know, 100% of your mental attention. Um, and uh, it's just not possible, unfortunately. And so I, I find myself splitting, um, people, uh, candidates into three groups. I don't consciously try to do this. I've noticed that this happens to me when I'm on a committee and I, I notice that some people are like one first category that stands out in my mind are the people that are absolutely, you know, spectacular playing, um, by which I mean, um, excellent intonation, discernible dynamics, uh, beautiful beginnings and endings of notes. Um, they, you know, a beautiful you know, sound, very tasteful vibrato. Um, a, um, they are well aware of, you know, the way these excerpts are played and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And just every, all T's are crossed, all I's are dotted. Um, and then um, there are people uh, for whom none of that is true, <laughs> you know, where there are some, you know, obviously they're, um, you know, in their development and are getting experience taking auditions or um, are severely thrown by the unfamiliarity of the process. Um, Because, you know, uh, we can try to simulate the feeling of of taking a professional audition and we can get close, but there's really nothing quite like 
um, being in that situation uh, where you have one one chance, you know, to nail the marriage of Figaro out of silence. Um, now, uh, but in between those two categories is what I call, um, I hope this isn't offensive to anybody, the ocean of okay. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's the largest category. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the category where, uh, you know, there may be things here and there that might have happened, nothing horrific enough that might make me, you know, uh, immediately discount somebody, but um, nothing remarkable, unfortunately. Now, mind you, listening to an audition is a exercise in comparative listening. Um, and and so you are you're comparing people against one another. It's just the way it is. Now, I I do when when I talk to my students, I say when one gets into the finals, um, everybody's playing all the notes incredibly well. Everybody's nailing it. Everybody has good intonation. Everybody has a beautiful sound. Everybody has a tasteful vibrato. And that is when uh, I I listen very differently. Uh, now, mind you, my colleagues, uh, you know, everybody listens for different things. Everybody absorbs performances differently. But that is a time when I sit back and I sort of try to get in touch with my emotional reaction to what I'm hearing. Um, because again, um, the, the, uh, the fine tooth comb has done its job. And, <laughs> and like I said, everybody's T's are crossed and I's are dotted. And now I'm listening uh, to hear what this person can um, artistically and emotionally contribute um, to the artistic product. Um, again, I feel like I've rambled, but I, I hope I've in some way yeah, answered really the question. Yeah. Okay, thank you. This is, <laughs> yeah, this is really good. I mean, mm-hmm. you've already given a ton of great advice, but I, it struck me that you said um, you've sat on three uh, second bassoon committees. And I wonder yes. if um you're not like what's 90, that about you're not 90 years old so uh it, yes. I guess it's relatively short amount of time yeah. and I wonder if you learned anything um about second playing or second auditioning in that process because kind of a I'm not an orchestral player but I guess it's a little unique uh, yeah uh yeah oh absolutely absolutely uh the reason why I've, I've had so many second bassoon auditions in my my time in in buffalo and and yes i am not 90, 90 years old thank you very much <laughs> getting there but anyway um no i um my uh, the uh, second bassoonist who was there um when i started uh retired and uh, then we, we hired somebody who won another position. And then that was filled. So that was the first uh, second bassoon audition that I had. Uh, and then when that person won a position in another orchestra, we had an audition for a one year, uh, which actually, thanks to the pandemic, turned into, I think, three one year successive positions. Mm-hmm. Um, and when uh, that was uh up we then had a th- another audition 
to permanently fill fill the position. Mm-hmm. So it's just circumstantial, really. Um, and uh, in in terms of um, how I view uh, Second Bassoon, the rather unique um, role of the Second Bassoon, um, I think is. Personally, I think it's the most important voice in a wind section. Uh, it is far too often the root of many chords. It is, it, it has to be the incredibly stable floor beneath the wind section and just the rock uh, upon which the wind section builds all chords and harmonies and, and stuff like that. And so uh, definitely um, a, an un- unwavering, Solidity of intonation is um, absolutely paramount. Um, and also um, just incredible control, of course, in the low register. There are certain non-negotiable second bassoon excerpts. Um, my, my, actually, interestingly enough, my first round for all of those, uh, I'm responsible for creating the list of excerpts and also for determining which excerpts are heard in each round. And my preliminary round is always the same. And um, I think it tells me everything I need to know. The very first thing, first of all, I don't hear any concerto. It's unnecessary. Um, the first thing I have candidates play is the fourth movement of Barely a Symphony Fantastique. Um, I feel that that is an excerpt that allows players, it's a somewhat, it it can be a a more of a comfortable excerpt in terms of the second bassoon or the the bassoon excerpts. And it allows the candidate to uh, gauge the acoustics of the hall. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, next is uh, Brahms Violin Concerto. Mm -hmm. It's abs- absolutely, I think, a non-negotiable uh, second bassoon uh, excerpt. It shows all about, um, you know, control in the low register and also uh, intonation. Um, it goes from, you know, an open F to a low F, then F, A, C. Now, if those those bars are not in tune, you know, most myself and my colleagues, we don't hear anything after that. You know, if that, that that's 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 pretty pretty incredibly telling. Um, and then uh, Marital Figaro Overture, which again is um, you know it encapsulates virtually everything that's incredibly difficult about playing bassoon. You know, um, and you know it 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 uh, the, the reason why I have just those three excerpts is that it gives my non bassoonist colleagues it 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 makes it incredibly obvious for them, um, you know, what is good bassoon playing and what is not good bassoon playing. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly enough, um, it one thing that's absolutely fascinating being on the listening side of the audition as much as I've been, I have listened to virtual almost every, an audition for absolutely every single instrument in my orchestra, all strings, um, flute, piccolo, oboe, English horn, clarinet, E-flat clarinet, not bass clarinet, second bassoon, obviously, contrabassoon is coming, um, trumpet, not trombone, tuba, harp, percussion. Um, I mean, I've, I've been through it, through it all, which is 
I think just as much of an education as a uh, master's degree, honestly. Um, and what I what I noticed is um, when I when I hold second bassoon auditions, you know, my non bassoonist colleagues, uh, they've heard these excerpts before, but they've never seen them. And when they see on the part, for example, in Marriage of Figaro, they will see a pianissimo followed by a fortissimo. And, you know, these these letters mean very different things to different instrumental groups. Mm-hmm. You know, um, obviously for bassoon, m- much of the time, our, our goal is to give the illusion of a tremendous dynamic range. And uh, <laughs> not so much of a stretch for our colleagues like clarinetists or brass players <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. And so... Uh, my non-bassoonist colleagues will often ask me, like, is 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 this normal for bassoon? <laughs> you know, like, or or they'll they'll start to recalibrate how they vote. It, it's again, I, I reiterate, play to your own aesthetic. You have no control <laughs> over who is listening to you and what they prize. And uh, yeah. Sorry again. Is I, your response... uh, my, my superpower, my, my superpower is going off on tangents, obviously. But here <laughs> well, we are. Well, I'm curious about your response to the question: Is that normal? How about you go play in heavy traffic? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I, um, uh, you know, it, it's it's you know it's difficult because on on one hand, you know, it's. It's very, um, you know, I want to be respectful to my colleagues and and not make them feel like idiots, you know, for for asking, you know, a question that 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 comes off initially comes off to me as as you know, kind of silly or or whatever, you know what I mean? Um, uh, so I, I try to be you know charitable about it, but but no, I I, I do explain that uh, the inherent difficulties in you know in in certain excerpts and or or why certain things sound the way they do or why they might not hear as big a dynamic difference or or or, or why people take time in certain places or you know and, and stuff like that. Luckily, my my experience in my orchestra is that people are very uh well defer to the instrumentalists of you know of that people who play the instrument you know and and also one thing we we really do that's that i really like is that if one if a player is and this isn't official it's not written into our contract but i've noticed that we tend to do it quite a bit which i think is really lovely is that if people are one vote shy of advancing, we ask if anyone on the committee is willing to change their vote to allow this person to advance. And that's actually been incredibly helpful because there have been many times where uh, where votes do get changed and that person, and obviously, you know, like I said, audition playing is a skill that needs to be practiced and usually people get better and better as the rounds go go on mm-hmm. and um and so so yeah would you describe to us your ideas of what makes a great principal player flexibility 
Absolutely. Um, you know, um, whereas I said that the, the second bassoonist is, uh, I view as the stable rock upon which uh, the wind section builds its, you know, oral abode. Um, the uh, principal bassoonist, I'm called upon to um, play solos by myself, play with the second bassoonist, play with every other principal, and really um, be able to match and be just like the ultimate team player. You know, um, I think... Um, you know, uh, uh, I think, yeah, I think flexibility of interpretation, flexibility, knowing uh, when to be supportive, when to blend, when to emerge. Um, it, one has to be incredibly flexible. And, uh, for example, uh, you know, I... I know that I I turn my vibrato off when I play with my principal clarinetist. I you know when we have like unison solos or or, or things of that nature. I you know uh, have a much more lush vibrato when I'm playing with my principal flutist. You know per se. Uh, I also have to have a and this goes for really anybody a flexibility of intonation, um, knowing where where my note falls in a chord um if i'm playing an f sharp in a d major chord i i know i'm better be flexible to to put that quite a bit lower than i would if it were the root in an f sharp minor chord or something of that nature so i think um yeah definitely a a degree of flexibility and collegiality uh one can think that a principal player is someone that has to sort of uh, lead a section, and that is absolutely true. Um, but there are many ways to lead, and I uh, I like to you know lead. I, I I definitely like to know when it's my turn to to follow and to accompany. Um, things like that, you know, also to be cognizant of the um, innate uh, peculiarities or playing characteristics of different instruments. For example, what comes to mind is um, the English horn solo in uh, Second Movement of Dvorak Ninth Symphony. Uh, famous, famous solo that the principal bassoon enters on you know and i have you know if one looks at the score my dynamics i believe are exactly the same i think uh or or just mirror that of the english horn player yet i uh take it upon myself to do far less of a crescendo than the english horn player because i do not want to drown out that color i feel that you know it's it's my role to just add to it you know it, it's it's a very subtle thing but for me it, it's it's very it's very subtle but it's very real mm-hmm. things like that um the buffalo philharmonic is one of the few great american orchestras with a female music director the great joanne yes. valletta can you yep. tell us 
more about that and your experience uh, under her baton? I've, I've played absolutely. under her one time and it was phenomenal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, um, interestingly enough, uh, Joanne and I started at the exact same time. Um, wow. She hired me and she uh, and I are her first season when I moved to Buffalo, like in August of to 1999. Sorry, I think I believe 1999. And September of 1999 was our first season like as before that she was music director designate but when the, the time that i started principal Zoom was her first year as music director and um unfortunately the she inherited an orchestra in a rather low point uh financially artistically um and you know, she had a, a tremendous amount of work uh, to do um, in terms of, you know, steering the ship and realizing an artistic vision. And I believe next year will be our 25th season um, with the orchestra. And when I look back, um, just, you know, the, I mean, the artistic growth, um, there's really not a section that does not have her imprint on it. In other words, she has hired people in virtually every single section of the orchestra, sometimes entire sections. And uh, so there's, you know, that side of just the influx and um, just the artistic leaps and bounds. But she has united a community to rally behind its orchestra um, like no one I have ever seen um, in, in the sense that she is able to, I mean, not only, you know, it, does she, you know, uh, did she raise the artistic standard of the orchestra and not only did she make us just one of the most recorded um, orchestras, uh, you know, to my knowledge, I, you know, I don't know. I, um, but we record every single year in multiple CDs and, and, and that does not happen by itself, <laughs> you know? Um, but she has just convinced um, wealthy non-musicians to get behind this orchestra in ways that, you know, uh, uh, you know, that uh, like I am in her, you know, like I, I will kiss the candy coated ground that woman walks on forever <laughs> because that is just the way it goes. You know, um, it's, you know, look, um, wealthy non-musicians are calling the shots in, in, in our industry. And I, I personally feel that it's always been that way. Um, that I think is the history of art. You know, um, nobody would know. I don't know that anybody would know who Haydn would be were it not for the Duke of Esterhazy. Um, you know, um, Mozart had, you know, definitely benefactors in Salzburg and, and you know, and, and on and on and on. And, um, you know, what jo Joanne has been able to do in terms of, you know, and again, when you think about it, convincing wealthy people to part with money 
is is a skill. That is a skill. And let me tell you, <laughs> whether she is talking to the president of the board of trustees or the men's room attendant at the hall, you know, um, she makes you feel like you're the most important person to her at that given moment. And you can't teach that, you know, and, uh, you know, I have benefited from it tremendously. Uh, so it has just been an absolutely breathtaking uh thing to not only be a part of but also to observe in terms of and not only do they um uh, do they you know do i benefit from the patronage of phenomenal people in buffalo but um not only you know but they they really she gets these people to really care about us buffalo philharmonic orchestra i don't believe lost a single paycheck during the entire covid pandemic um wow. at the beginning of it the the board and we we heard that this was the case the board president of the board said we cannot or like we we must support these musicians um and to to just cultivate that culture of support for you know the orchestra and the arts is an enduring legacy on her that's part that's amazing that's without amazing without a doubt absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely mhm can we talk uh setup a little bit can we hear what kind of instrument you play on your approach to reeds all that good stuff yes i uh well I have, um, my heckles are being worked on by Frank Marcus at the moment. I have a um, 16,000 heckle and uh, that I ordered from heckle. I do have a bell coming in September. Uh, when I started working with Ben Bell, I was rather smitten with his instruments and ordered one. So there's that. Then, um, you asked me about my setup for what my reads are like. Yeah. And people also love to hear a little bit about like habits for someone who has a job like yours. Like what does that part of the job look like? Yeah. 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 I, um, my, uh, I made, um, the Hertzberg style reads for, for decades. Of course, I mentioned that I studied at Rice University with Ben Caymans and I worked with Norman Hertzberg, uh, at Domaine Forger for two summers and took quite a few lessons with him at his house in Los Angeles. Um, and so I was heavily influenced by that school of reed making. And so for decades, um, made Hertzberg style reeds, by which I mean reeds with the Hertzberg shaper, with the Hertzberg profiler, with the wire placement that he and Ben Caymans espoused, and just the sort of the way, uh, intonation and response is prioritized above all else um, for decades. Then, you know, in comes the pandemic where I was playing very little. And I thought this would be a very unique opportunity to experiment. And I kind of went shaper happy um, and bought a whole bunch of shapers Purely, not with any goal in mind, but purely to see if if I learned anything. Um, and, you know, it, it actually um, 
just confirmed everything I I knew about shapers and which admittedly um, was, was not a tremendous amount, meaning the wider a shaper is, the lower the pitch, the more it favors the low register. Conversely, the narrower a shaper is, um, it favors the high register, the, it tends to be on the sharper side, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, however, um, I like having many different shapers. Should I be inclined to experiment in the future or should my students uh, want to um, dabble, you know, and, and see what, you know, for their own uh, education. Um, but right now um, I have been uh, working with the, uh, the Fox to shape. I, uh, I have been using that shaper uh, because I have been searching for a non-Hertzberg profiler profiler uh, and profile that uh, gives me a, a profile that I think is, you know, works well, by which I mean, does not take it too far, but does not make it so that it takes four hours of work to determine whether it's going to be a good read or not. Mm-hmm. somewhere in there, you know, so, uh, <laughs> so yeah, that's my, my setup these days. Awesome. Would you share with us a favorite memory from a past performance? Oh, uh, let's see. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about this, uh, because, you know, my, my performances, uh, you know, I, un- unfortunately, I, I tend to be uh, an OCD perfectionist and uh, I tend to, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, struggle with looking back fondly on performances often. Uh, however, uh, reaching way, way, way back in the past, I remember a recital I did give at Rice University where I played the Francais Bassin Concerto. Uh, that I remember uh, it representing um, a uh, a level of uh, sort of yeah, you know, just the culmination of a tremendous amount of work and focus, and uh, it was very it was very confidence inducing, um, which was very helpful because that recital was only a few weeks before my Buffalo audition. Mm. And one of the, in some of your preparatory questions, you talked about advice um, and I, uh, that I would give to people taking auditions and scheduling a recital close to an audition is, can be very, very helpful. You may think it's overwhelming. However, after playing a recital, you know, an eight bar excerpt is not quite as daunting. Uh, Also, you're fundamentally in shape, which is um, what it's all about, really, you know, so, so definitely. Do you have any, like, funny or embarrassing stories to share with us over the course of your career that we can laugh at? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) I, you know, um, well, actually, okay, so I have, I have a few stories. Um, can I tell a few stories? Yeah. Are, we, are we good? Okay. We need them. Um, <clears throat> all right, so 
picture this. All right. So I, uh, I, I won the job in October of 1998. And my first week uh, playing with the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra was a few weeks later. It was in early November of 1998. Jo- it was Joanne's week of conducting the orchestra as music director designate. And that was the only time. And so I, I figured, you know, she just picked me. I was definitely going to be there. Um, the program started out with Hindemith Symphonic Metamorphoses, uh, Mendelssohn Piano Concerto Number 1, I believe, and Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony. Okay, so hello, right? <laughs> Quite a bit. <laughs> and I remember um, the, the concert was going to start at 8, and so I was, I mean, not only was I horrifically nervous, um, obviously, but I wanted to get to the hall at seven, like just, just to be there, to warm, go to find a dressing room, warm up, just kind of be in that space. And the way that our hall is set up, the stage door, you, you walk into the hall from the stage door, and just like a few feet from that is the actual door to the stage, okay? So seven o'clock, I walk in from the stage door, I see Joanne Folletta standing there, the door to the stage opens, she walks out, and I hear the audience erupt in applause, and I thought, oh, my God, that like th- this is the beginning of the concert, you know, and I thought, am I first of all, I, you know, just my all my memories flashed. I'm like, am I in some daylight savings nightmare that I forgot to fall back or what? You know, what the hell? It was the pre-concert lecture. <laughs> Seriously, it was a pre-concert lecture. And I thought, well, this cardiac moment sort of got me. Pre- and, you know, honestly, after that, what what could I be nervous for? <laughs> you know, um, but um, I will I will share a, a somewhat less, you know, joyous story. Um, the, the following season was her and my inaugural season. It was her inaugural season as a music director. First concert pre-concert like the preseason gala not the preseason it was a season gala crying out loud was Carmina Barana uh-huh. okay um and which many of your listeners know has a, a rather precarious bassoon moment um <clears throat> and you know I I was well aware of it you know for <laughs> many months prior and I was preparing in every way that I knew how and uh, rehearsals, I thought, were going well. Uh, Joanne made some very compliment, you know, some nice compliments. Um, and so I was, I was focused. I was, you know, very much engaged. And come the night of the concert, oh, God, okay. So the, the the baton went up. The baton came down, and a like, <laughs> you know, like the D's just would not come out. And, and I, I kept on trying and I, like, I can't even, I can't even describe like the, the abject horror. Those are, like, she almost had to stop. I just kept on going through sheer just force of will and eventually got through it. And, you know, um, it was strange because, you know, nowhere in my preparation or any of the rehearsals, was I given any indication that there was a possibility of something like that happening? You know, it wasn't like 
I had struggled with reads that week and, you know, or my, you know, a pad fell off earlier that week and I had to re-glue it. About, you know, I, nothing. Like there was no, it was the most, one of the most, shocking moment it's 25 years ago and i'm still talking about it basically it was just an outrage and now the the unfortunate part is that that solo happens sort of midway through this piece and you know unfortunately i couldn't you know sort of you know calmly put my bassoon away you know exit the stage and you know jump off the peace bridge into lake erie or whatever you know i you know what i had to like sit there and you know and i was just sort of calmly sitting there and thinking okay well you know i won't get tenure now so like what else could i do as a profession and like what am i interested in it you you know i mean just you know all of the all of the the worst case scenarios It, it was it was um just you know shocking humiliating embarrassing it, it, it was it was just like you know everything rolled up into one. Now, um, <laughs> you know, one. I mean, this it happens. Like we're we're people under pressure, and we're human, and um, uh, and you know, one has no choice but to you know move on from from that and uh, sort of redouble my efforts in terms of trying to um, head off at the pass any uh, potential you know, pitfalls or anything like that. Funny story that actually happened again in another context. So, uh, yeah, Carmina Burana and I, uh, you know, don't necessarily get along. I played it well and- other, you know, other, other times, but, you know, too rather. And of course, you know, it happens at a time where, you know, it's a gala. So the hall is packed, white, you know, b- white tie, evening gowns brand new music director who hired me full orchestra singer soloist choirs children's choir like it couldn't be at some like run out you know (laughs) chamber orchestra no one here you know it was as high profile as it got at that point and uh yeah so that was a a rather sort of baptism by fire in terms of uh what can go wrong and when it can go wrong. But you've gone yeah. on to have such a, not gone on, but that's just one moment. And when those moments happen, they feel so yep. defining. They feel so, uh, I thank you for sharing that because I, I don't know that yeah. all mm-hmm. successful professional people would be vulnerable to be that honest, but I feel like, especially, I mean, we all hear it, but our younger listeners just have to hear that these moments do not define you. Yeah, I, you know, look, uh, it's, it's defining and it's, it it can be so tremendous. It it affects us because we care. Right. You know, uh, you, you post questions about uh, performance anxiety and, you know, I uh, was thinking about it because I I also had, had a similar audition in uh, a similar experience at an audition where I think I fell flat on my face. I had the, the absolute worst audition experience of my life. Can I tell this story? Yep, my please. Life? Okay, yeah. this is for the London Symphony Orchestra um, in London, England. And it was one of the, I think the first time I auditioned for an, you know, an European orchestra. And 
you know, you have to, to prepare some solo repertoire and as well. And I remember um, it wasn't in the Barbican Center, which is where I believe, I mean, they, they play many, many places, but I think their home venue, at least at that time, was a place called the a huge performance venue uh, called the Barbican Center. But it wasn't even in there. It was in some random church in a suburb of London called Shoreditch. So I get there and it's gloomy, it's gray, it's raining, whatever, it's London. That's how it goes. Um, but it's freezing, you know, and we had to uh, warm up. I had to warm up in a room that was very hot um, and go into a sanctuary where it was really, really cold. Um, and there was no, there was no screen. And so uh, I could see all all the play, all the the players, and as soon as I started playing, <clears throat> there was what I would refer to as an ambulance convention uh, <laughs> across the street. Uh, ambulance, oh sorry, ambulance and fire truck convention. That's what it was uh, across the street, <clears throat> where no one batted an eye. Um, everyone sat and listened to me, you know, arms folded, um, listened to me and, you know, <laughs> um, and, uh, I, I vividly just, you know, remember, um, uh, just what was really interesting was that I could see the facial expressions of the people who were hearing me. And, and at that time I was, I was experiencing some really horrific problems in my playing um, that were being broadcast back to me on the, you know, rather despondent faces listening to me, to me play. And it was a really kind of, um, stark, you know, brick wall of realization mm. that this is not going well. And what you perceive in your playing, it is not, you're not imagining it. It is really, really happening. And, you know, um, when, after I played like maybe two or three excerpts or something like that, you know, the, the, the adjudicator, you know, asked the rest of the committee if they wanted to hear any more and, you know, just seeing them one by one, just sort of shake their head. No, is, 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 is uh proof, you know, that to me at that time that I was not playing well and everybody can hear it. Now you wow. very well may, th I totally, totally. You very well may think that I would have exited that. Oh, and also what's kind of interesting is that that's in that kind of audition situation, they tell you, or at least they told me immediately, like they vote immediately on every single candidate. And, and, um, Oh gosh. I remember the woman saying to me, right. We don't need to hear any more at this time. And I remember thinking, you mean like ever, right? <laughs> you mean like, like I like I know you're being kind, but like let's be real. Like I'm done, right? You know, and, and you know. Now you very well may think that I would have emerged from that experience rather despondent, um, but I actually was incredibly inspired um, because I felt like 
I knew exactly what I needed to work on. I knew I had, it was like clarity of purpose. And I felt like a man on a mission. And it, it was sort of like the fog of mystery of deny of denial was immediately lifted. And I had to embark on a journey of um, reevaluating and reassessing um, absolutely every aspect of bassoonistry uh, from that moment on. And so, yes, there are tremendously embarrassing, humiliating moments in one's career. Well, sorry. Yes, I've experienced, I can't speak to any of my colleagues. I, you know, it's possible that some of my colleagues have never experienced anything like this. But like, um, there are, you you can experience moments of, exceptional humiliation and embarrassment um, and disappointment. Um, but they have, they have actually been, for me, the catalysts for some of my greatest periods of growth, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. without a doubt, yeah. without a doubt. Um, I sought out the pedagogy of a man named Keith Underwood after that London symphony audition, who's a, I don't know if either of you or uh, some of your listeners may, might be familiar with this, with this uh, pedagogue. Uh, Keith Underwood is, uh, well, he changed my life, but he is a uh, flutist in New York. He's a flute teacher. He's on the faculty of many colleges in New York. And he's a, I'm just, for lack of a better term, a breathing pedagogue and uh, works with um, musicians of, you know, brass musicians, all wind musicians, um, string players, vocalists, absolutely. And applies um, some fascinating, fascinating concepts. Uh, I did actually a lecture at Meg Quigley, um, I believe 2020 on the, on um, presenting his concepts for bassoonists Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, so uh, that I I use regularly, absolutely regularly. So, so yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you know, uh, horrible moments can, can lead to, you know, uh, tremendous uh, periods of growth. Lynn, this has been an incredible, inspiring, fun, <laughs> engaging interview. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Uh, oh, thank you so much for, for having me. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. We hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to run over to DoubleReDish.com and get your DoubleReDish coloring book and rate and review on iTunes. Follow us on social media to connect. Galit, who's coming up on the next episode? We had a wonderful conversation with freelancer Caitlin Kramer, who is based in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and just shares her magic with us. Jackie, time to end this nerd parade. Go color a page in your coloring book. You don't have to make reads, just color. Just color.